This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, William Morris, 1834 to 1896, is best known now as a designer of wallpaper and for his advice to have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. Look beneath that wallpaper and you'll find a Victorian socialist appalled by the lives of factory workers. He contrasted their conditions with the medieval world where he pictured craftsmen taking pleasure in their work and working for pleasure. For him, the aesthetic was political. He thought if workers were more aware of beauty and its value, they would agitate, would agitate them and make them notice what the rich had in abundance and which they too might have if a revolution came. With me to discuss William Morris, R. Marcus Waith, University Serious Senior... Senior Lecturer in English Literature at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of Magdalen College, Ingrid Hansen, Lecturer in 18th and 19th Century Literature at the University of Manchester, and Jane Thomas, Professor of Victorian and Early 20th Century Literature at the University of Hull. Marcus Wade, can you tell us about William Morris's early life? Yes, um, Morris was born in 1837. Um, both of his parents were um, of Welsh extraction, uh, Morris became very aware and proud of that heritage um, as his life uh, proceeded. He was born in Walthamstow, uh, now East London, and um, he was born into a very um, wealthy um, upper middle class um, background. His father was a stockbroker, um, but he also bought some shares in um, a mining company called Devon Great Consuls, which was mining copper. Um, and those shares grew in value tremendously and the family were able to um, move to a very um, grand mansion with quite a lot of land around it, around it called um, Woodford Hall. Um, the figure of the capitalist looms large in Morris's life in the, in the socialist imagination that develops later on and um, he um, was evidently marked, I suppose, by his father's um, uh, wealth and standing um, and reacts against it but he also um, develops a friendship with his father based on going to churches um, taking brass rubbings um, he was taken to um, Canterbury Cathedral by his father um, he was um, uh, then sent away to school um, to Marlborough College um, in 1848 in the year of revolutions we are, you, you just touched on, beginning to touch on, the Christian values. It was an evangelical household, wasn't it? And therefore going to, uh, going to churches, taking brass rubbings. Taking brass rubbings, you could say, is the beginning of the Ashton Krauss movement in his mind. This was a po potent part of his life, wasn't it? Yes, um, an evangelical background, but also in the Anglican church. And that allows um, Morris to move towards a, a kind of high Anglican position based on that antiquarian interest that moves into... Um, Tractarianism and the, the Oxford movement, this the increase of interest in vestments, buildings, the ritual, I suppose, and the architecture, um, the ritual architecture of, of religion. He went to Oxford uh, and met people there who, with whom he stayed friends for the rest of his life and who influenced him as he influenced them. Can you tell us about that? Yes, um, when he goes up for his um, Oxford exam, he meets um, Edward Byrne Jones, who remain, remains a friend for the, the rest of his life. Um, uh, they collaborate for the for the whole of their lives in various ways. Um, but Burne Jones brought with him um, Burne Jones and Morris were both at Exeter College. But Burne Jones brought with him a group of friends who were at Pembroke College, Oxford, who had come from uh, uh, King Edward's Grammar School in Birmingham. So they came from a slightly um, uh, a social background where, well, they didn't have quite the financial resources that Morris had. And Morris was at first. First of all, he was interested in in their interests, but he was also able to make things happen because of his wealth. So he was able, for example, to support a magazine called the Oxford and Cambridge Magazine, which this group, who called themselves the Set or the Birmingham Set, um, contributed to. And they had a big, they had quite a big influence on them, didn't they? They brought a new world breath of fresh air into this hall in uh, an Epic Forest, riding around on his pony, dressed in armour, all that sort of stuff. Um, that's right, yes. I, I, well, I, in some ways they help him to connect with that childhood um, in Epping Forest, to reconnect with the, the interests in, in poetry, um, medievalism generally. Um, he gets them interested in architecture and they get him 
more interested in Tennyson and in um, that kind of literary medievalism. Um, but they all, in various ways, um, start to well, at least he and uh, he and Burne Jones start to fall away from their original intention, which, which was to become priests in the church, um, and they decide to become artists. Um, whereas some of those other folk, um, William Fulford, for example, um, Richard Dixon, do end up becoming um, priests. Thank you very much. Jane Thomas, uh, at Oxford he met Jane Burden, a stable man's daughter, whom he, workers whom he married. What was the nature of their relationship? Was it almost an ideological <laughs> marriage? Well, it's uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti who introduces Jane Burden to William Morris. Um, as Marcus said, when they decide to give up holy orders, Morris and Byrne-Jones, um, they travel around Europe and then they decide to devote themselves to art. Um, Morris is going to become an architect, which he does for only nine months. Um, Edward Ben jones goes to study painting with Dante Gabriel Rossetti, who they've been introduced to via Ruskin, modern painters. Rossetti takes his muses from the working class. Lizzie Siddle was a milliner's daughter. Jane Burden was an ostler's daughter. And she was one of what the group called stunners, these unusually looking, rather beautiful women from the working class. Well, why did they... Why did they why did they decide on that, that they had to come from the working class? Um, because they were, they were anti the Victorian uh, tradition of the angel in the house and Victorian ideals of beauty. And Jane Burden was very striking. She was not the Victorian ideal of beauty. She was tall, uh, she had very dark hair, masses of dark, crinkly hair. Um, apparently, she had a monobrow, uh, but she had these dark, soulful, deep... I don't get monobrow, sorry. I'm not up in there. <laughs> uh, a bit like Frida Kahlo. Oh, brow, see, right. straight across. Oh, I see, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the thick, the eyebrows joined thick, at the top brows. of the nose. That's yeah. right, got it. She had these deep, dark, Swinburnian eyes and this rather marvellous, wonderful, sensuous mouth. So she she looked very unusual. So Rossetti introduces her into the group as a model... There's a deep attraction between them, but of course Rossetti is himself still connected um, and um, bound dutifully to Lizzie Siddle. So Rossetti can't marry Jane. Lizzie Siddle calls Rossetti um, away from the group. And so in order to secure Jane's presence in the group, William Morris marries her, because William tended to do everything that Gabriel Rossetti did. He falls very much under Rossetti's no, so It's worse than charm. I thought. It's, it's tactical. <clears throat> Well, on Jane Morris's part, it is because she's a young working class woman. She's only eighteen when she meets Rossetti, yeah. Yeah. and she's she's you know she makes a very good marriage with with uh, Morris because he's extremely wealthy. Of him being tactical, not her. Of Morris being tactical. Yeah. Oh yes, he wants to keep her. I mean, Morris is infatuated with Jane. Whether or not she reciprocated their arrangement is is not clear. Anyway, they they married. Being infatuated, so he, <laughs> he, he, there she was. They got married. They got married. Yeah. yeah. Well, Which they, is actually, they had uh, they got engaged in 1858. They had a year long engagement so that Jane could be trained in what would be expected of her as an upper upper middle class really? wife. I didn't know that bit. What did, yeah. How did they train her? Oh, just in the niceties of hostessing. She was a great hostess, particularly at the Red House. Then they went on a honeymoon in Europe for six months and came back, and then they moved into the Red House. Uh, which I think we're going to talk about a bit later, maybe, where they had um, a five-year idyll. Their two daughters were born there, including May, who was herself quite a formidable young woman. Um, and then um, Lizzie Siddle dies, and Rossetti comes back to claim Jane um, in 1865. And uh, really, they have a tormented... Um, a sort of romantic triangle from that point onwards, which which seems to drive them all to a pitch of emotional and physical despair. On the other hand, Morris behaves in a... Morris, is one of the things is that he, his marriage is legalised prostitution, is a sort of legalised prostitution, and he doesn't... That's a quotation. You're, you're agreeing with that. He said that. And, and, he, uh, and he thinks, well, OK, uh, I'm not going to be proprietorial about this. So where you go. Yeah, well, he's against all forms of property, particularly the idea of women being the property of men. Yeah. I mean, he's, he, I mean, Morris 
you have to admire him for his earnestness, however compromised he is. He's one of the most earnest of the Victorians. He's always trying to do the right thing in complex circumstances. Um, he doesn't believe, and you, there's the, the, the couple in News from Nowhere, Dick and Clara, uh, which seems to shadow his and Rossetti's relationship a little bit. So we have him there, we have him at Oxford. He's got his friends, he's got his strong friends, he's interested in the arts, he's got married to the stunner, as you call her. Mm-hmm. She, they have children, uh, things are going well, Rossetti turns up and she goes away. And that's where we are at the moment. Okay, Ingrid Hansen. Let's bring in Roskin, the great Victorian art critic and, and uh, philosopher, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was an influence there. Can you tell us what influence he was, please? Absolutely. He was a huge influence on Morris. Morris and his friend Burne Jones first came across Ruskin when they were students at Oxford. His magisterial series of works on modern painters, and in particular, Morris and Burne Jones were interested in and influenced by um, the nature of Gothic, which is a chapter of the Stones of Venice. And the nature of Gothic is really the work in which Ruskin sets out the connection between art and a kind of theory of social responsibility, and it's the work work in which he starts to critique uh, Victorian social mores through the um, medium of um, architecture. So in that work, um, Ruskin suggests that there's a connection between Gothic architecture and the northern people from whom Gothic architecture arose. So he suggests that Gothic architecture is characterised by changefulness, savageness or rudeness, um, and the people who created that architecture are also characterised by love of change, love of nature. So he points to the naturalness of Gothic architecture too and its quality of ornamentation. Um, And so he suggests that the workers of the Middle Ages who built Gothic cathedrals, for instance, were working with a kind of freedom that the Victorian worker doesn't have anymore. He also points to the quality of imperfection in the work of Gothic as opposed to the perfect roundness of the sunny uh, work that arises out of Greek and Rome. Uh, Greece and Rome. And this is really important to Morris, this idea of Ruskin's that imperfection is in some sort essential to all that we know of life. It's a sign of growth and change. That follows Morris all of his life. And actually, very much later, looking back on the influence of Ruskin, Morris says how dull life would have been without Ruskin. And he also says this really crucial thing, art is an expression of man's pleasure in labour. And he says if that's not Professor Ruskin's words, that's certainly the gist of them. And he talks about the significance of people being connected rather than disconnected from their work in a way that later on when Morris becomes a Marxist would really reflect Marx's idea of the alienation of labour. But Morris already gets this from Ruskin. And in terms of uh, the ideas of art that that, uh, Morris is assembling, uh, getting for himself, Ruskin's notion, you tell me, obviously if I'm wrong, of being true to life was vital for him and he took that on. And actually he didn't see life, he and his friends didn't see life around them in the work of the time. No, absolutely. And for Ruskin, truth to nature is really important too. And he talks about that, that Ruskin is key in um, defending the pre-Raphaelites, so that earlier uh, generation of artists, Dante Gabriel Rossetti um, and his friends, defending them from charges of, of sort of... Um, producing art which is um, distasteful because it's dealing it's the way in which the angles are in the pictures the way in which people are portrayed there is dealing with um, the kind of rawness of life. Ruskin defends the pre-Raphaelites on that front um, and Morris really takes up this idea of um, art which is simple in a way art that has a simple connection to nature um, art which is not characterised by um, a kind of separation between the worker and the thing that he produces. But also art, and this is an important point from Ruskin, that art is not something for the elite. Art is not something separate from everyday life. Art arises out of the character of the people and their daily work. And this becomes crucial for Morris all the way through his work, from his very earliest romances, in which he has people making their own weapons and using them, through to his latest um, socialist utopia, in which unalienated work is a central part of the life there. He also declared that one of his main passions was his hatred of modern life. That's right. He says, one of the leading passions of my life has been and is hatred of modern civilization. And he starts, prefaces that by what saying, apart from that? the desire to produce beautiful things. So what did he so mean? So he takes up again Ruskin's idea about the... Um, ugliness really of uh, Victorian industrialisation Morris talks quite often about smoke in News from Nowhere, his 1890 utopia when the traveller arrives in that beautiful remade world it's London but transformed, he says 
there's he, he, what, what has vanished is the smoke vomiting chimneys. So the sense that some are rich, some are poor, and and industrialization has brought this massive division between the rich and the poor is a real problem for Morris. Mm. He talks about how the Whig idea is to have champagne for the rich and margarine for the poor. It is marginally important the irony involved of him benefiting from some of the worst-run mines in Devon and Cornwall. It is. Let's leave it at that for a moment, (laughs) shall we? Uh, Marcus, um, what did he find in the medieval world that inspired him? I mean, his early work was about the medieval world and so on. Yes, and indeed he he continues to be preoccupied with the medieval world all through his life. And I think it's easier to dismiss medievalism as as a form of nostalgia. But I think for Morris... Even from the early point in his life, it's an active engagement with the present. He begins by being fascinated by the romance as a literary form, but but quickly the romance comes. We're talking about Mallory uh, uh, and the knights of the Round Table, Guinevere and Lancelot, and that stuff. Yes, I mean he's interested in chivalry. I mean there's a boyish delight in it, but he comes to see that he, he says that. Romance is a power of making the past part of the present. So for him, the Middle Ages are always acting on the present in the sense that they are alerting him to something that's wrong. It begins as a kind of discomfort with the present, but becomes something theorised. Morris thinks that the Middle Ages, well, he sees the Middle Ages were a time of inequality. He's aware of, you know, that feudalism was a sort of structured, um, a, a brutal hierarchy. But... While he acknowledges that, he also says, well, um, the Middle Ages were a time um, when people were involved in um, patterns of association based on that kind of working culture that Ingrid was referring to earlier. So the guilds become a very important symbol for him. That's nothing to do with the working class, the guilds. Well, Morris... Um, does slightly elide that difference between. He's wrong there. I mean, he? well, he the working class is obviously they are in a sense a concept that's that's a, that's an anachronistic concept. Um, uh, the working class is you know in a sense come into being with industrialization, but but certainly he thought that there was a connection between the world of the fields and a kind of craft culture which was nurtured in the guilds in his mind. Whether he's correct about that is another matter, but that's the way he saw it. He wrote what can be called a novella, or a little, almost a treatise, called, a treatise sorry, called The Dream of John Ball. John Ball was the leading figure, next to Watt Tyler, in the miscalled Peasants' Revolt of 1381, which almost toppled the, 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 the whole regime at that time. What did he find, though? What did he say? Can you be succinct? What did he say about that that backed up, or that backed up the ideas he had about the virtues of medievalism? Well, he saw in the Peasants' Revolt um, the expression of a, 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 um, a spirit of discontent, a holy flame of discontent, he calls it. Um, so while this wasn't a Marxist re- revolution, it was for him a revolution, and therefore it bore a connection. There was a continuity with the socialist cause that he was invested in. Um, this, in a sense, is you know, it's in some ways a heterodox position, but that's the position that he he tries to push in a dream of John Ball. Uh, Ingrid, you want to come in? Yeah, can I? I also wanted to add that he he also sees in 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 a dream of John Ball as a representation of fellowship, and again that comes back to the yeah. point about the guilds. One of the things that's important for Morris in the imagination of those medieval guilds is the idea of people working for each other, being willing to share their lives. So he's the the, the dream the um character in John, the, the preacher character in John Ball, which is who John Ball is, he's the, he's the preacher who stirs up um, the working classes to go to the revolution, says fellowship is life and lack of fellowship is death. He says fellowship is heaven and lack of fellowship is hell and the deeds that you do on this earth, it's for fellowship's sake that you do them. So that sense is really important and that ties into Morris's idea of socialism as well. And Morris is the subject of this programme, but there's a disjunction between what he thought and what was really happening. Most of the working class were in states of different degrees of servitude at the time, and association was actually they couldn't move from the estates, they were on without permission for their owner, and so on and so forth. But So we'll just have to say this is verging on fantasy, although it has roots somewhere or other 
especially in his imagination. Well, I think there's a really important point that Morris makes, which is he contrasts, for instance, the violence of the Middle Ages with what he calls the civilised soldiering of the Victorian period. So what is important for him is that in the medieval period, this inequality is open and acknowledged. It isn't, as he sees it, kind of cloaked between a sort of different kind of relations that come up in capitalism, the sense that people could uh, better themselves. It's open, and for him that's important. What's honest and open and acknowledged can be challenged. Jane, Jane Thomas, we would veer now between the political thing, which he's getting, entering into in the association, and the art. And the Red House you referred to earlier is, is a step in that direction. Can you just tell us a bit more about that and why that matters? Um, well, it matters because, it, it, in a sense, it's, Morris, it's the embodiment of all of Morris's ideas about how architecture... Uh, can work best to connect people to the earth, to the surroundings in which they live. But it also embodies the idea of fellowship that Ingrid was talking about. It was designed by Philip Webb, who was part of the circle. Um, It was built in in, uh, local materials, red brick and red tiles. It had a Gothic design. It was irregular. It was uh, cunningly irregular, uh, according to that Ruskinian idea. It had little turrets and... um, it was um, archaic in, it, in its look and in its field. Um, it was built in an orchard in such a way as to uh, necessitate the felling of a, as a few apple trees as possible. And uh, <coughs> a lot of guests there were surprised in hot weather by apples falling through their windows. Um, but it was it was um, it was the scene of 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 a, of a real fellowship and friendship until. Rossetti comes in, of course, and uh, second, it. it was a remarkable thing. But was he saying? I am showing you how great the past was. Or was he saying, I'm showing you what the future can be? I think he's showing us what the present can learn from the past, what the present can take from the past and develop for the future. Marcus? This is a very early point in Morris's thinking, but it's, very no- it's noticeable there's a connection between the modern world and the medievalism in that you know, the house has sash windows. The house is on the, road, the, the medieval road to Canterbury, but it's also close to a railway station that Morris needs to get into London to, uh, when, when he sets up his firm of decorators. The, sorry, what you I was going to say that um, the, the house was furnished by Morris and Jane during this five-year idyll um, with paintings by Byrne-Jones, even Rossetti uh, contributed a painting, um, Webb designed the, the furniture and it was out of that, that cooperative endeavour um, that the firm of Morris, Morris Marshall, Faulkner and Co was born um, So be, because they couldn't find anything um, that was manufactured that suited their tastes, they developed their own furniture and then they turned that into a uh, a non-profit or profit-sharing cooperative enterprise. So I'm trying to keep this troika of his life together. There was there was the <coughs> artist himself. There was a sort of businessman artist setting up magazines with his friends, funding funding things for them and that sort of thing. Uh, and so the so, and there was a socialist as well, right? Uh, can we uh, tell go into a different area because he seemed to be fascinated by violence and think the thought that. Would you tell me why I was fascinated by violence? Mm. I know why I think it was, but you're the, you're the guest. <laughs> Thank you, yes. I think an, an, important, an important moment when Morris kind of articulates something about this is at the end of a lecture called The Aims of Art that he gives in 1883. He implores his listener, the, uh, listeners at the end, he says, I ask you to think with me uh, that the worst that can happen to us is to endure the evils that we see tamely. Uh, No trouble or turmoil is so bad as that, he says. Um, And he goes on to say that everywhere we must be resolute in church, in state, in the household, to uh, endure no tyranny, accept no lie, quail beneath no fear. And I think it's that where where Morris sees violence and turmoil as necessary correlatives of change. He says elsewhere, hope, um, times of trouble and turmoil are always also times of hope. So in his early days, he's looking back to those stories by Mallory. He's looking back to the Knights of the Round Table and the, the turmoil and change that comes through battle. The ways in which knights, first of all, express their own identity in battle. Again, they're using their hands. Um, they, they, it's hand-to-hand warfare rather than something distant and alienated. So he sees this as a kind of representation of honest connection with their world, with the things that are happening around them. But he also brings in some complications into that, right in that early literature. So one of his early poems, The Defence of Guinevere, has Queen Guinevere obviously accused of adultery with Lancelot, defending herself um, and at the very end of that poem uh, she hears Lancelot coming and she turns to listen to him as a man might turn to hear the sound of his um, a, fellow fighter. Why can't a woman turn? 
Sorry? Why can't a woman turn? Because she's listening to him as though she were a knight. And in those days, oh, there are no female knights. So she listens to him as, as one might hear the sound of a fellow knight's charger. So M- Morris sees in, in his early days violence as representative of change and turmoil. And that's a, that's a good thing. But also, as he comes to think about it through the course of his work, it's representative of um, a hope for change and a willingness to bear pain rather than endure evil. And that was a, a, a fundamental, uh, we needn't go back to it, a fundamental reason for his attraction to the Peasants' Rebellion because, and also he said of that, the violence, although it might not succeed then, it, it, it will come back if it's planted properly. In, other people will do it in other ways, but it, will, it, it is the way through. Absolutely. Men fight and the thing they fought for doesn't Marcus, come. Marcus, let's switch to the other area now, almost uh, to the wallpaper, but to his development of his artistic notions. Uh, and what he did in his business, as as as, uh, as we've been, as we've heard from Jane. Yes, um, if I could dwell on the wallpaper, because I think that's, yeah. that's an important area, and and one that it's easy to to dismiss as a kind of ornamentalism. And you know, we often see his patterns in you know gift shops transferred to different media. Um, often, it's not very kind to the patterns often. But Morris didn't think of uh, wallpaper or any other kind of pattern as as simple ornamentation, though he did take ornamentation seriously. Essentially, he thinks that. Wallpaper patterns are um, an attempt attempt to bring something from the outside world, that world of nature we were hearing about earlier, into into the inside world, into a room. But he makes it very clear that if we're in the business of simply representing things um, in a meticulous or scientific way, we would actually nail bits of um, tree onto the wall of our rooms or take in flower cuttings. We don't do that. So rather we conventionalise the things that we see. So... Um, he's, in a sense, steering a middle course between um, the French um, wallpapers, which were very kind of floral um, and more illusionistic in their in their depictions, and the design reformers. So Owen Jones, who wrote a book called The Grammar of Ornament, it's very geometric. So Morris um, wants to move away from the illusionistic approach, but not go all the way to the geometric, because he's, he's committed to some kind of relationship with nature, but it has to be conventionalised. And he believes that good patterns should embody order, imagination and beauty. He doesn't, he's not very interested in defining the word beauty, interestingly, but he explains that imagination is a matter of communication and of meaning. Our papers should mean something and they should be ordered. There should be a connection, a, a kind of binding agent between imagination and beauty and they should be restful. Can I turn to Jane on that one, the beauty, and just mention one other little irony, with the irony of the of the factory workers in his own minds being uh, appallingly treated. A little, and we have a little irony here that this art is for everyone, and yet he's creating wallpaper that mm. can be purchased only by rich or even very rich. Just, mm. I think we, if you want to develop that, that's fine. Otherwise, I just think it should be noted. Well, he, he again earnestness you know he realizes that the kind of designs that he's doing can only be afforded by the rich and he and he gets exasperated at pandering to the swinish luxury of the rich at some point that's his quotation that's his quotation he's also of course running factories where the tapestries are produced which employ child labor but then he's not alone in that everybody's employing child labor but he is trying to make the conditions within which these children are working amenable he's giving them a trade um he's treating them well um but it's quite in, difficult to get a grip on, on history, which is so alien to why we do things yes, like that. Yeah. And I notice the tentativeness with it. <laughs> and I sympathise with you. It's a difficult one, too. You did it very well. <laughs> well, he's so compromised all the way through. But, I mean, that makes him, in a sense, more admirable. Um, he could have done a lot of things with the money that he inherited from the copper mines, but he decides to put it into yeah. the, the benefit of all as much as he possibly can. Everywhere, everything he tries to do, he gets caught up with these compromises in his personal life, his his um, his um, in, you know his industrial life, his artistic life. It's uh, Marcus, I think said he, he, he wasn't he didn't define beauty very. I'd quite like you to have a go at that. Okay, so um, this is where the muse comes in, of course, because um, <coughs> these these stunners seem for Morris as well as for Rossetti to embody um, they're the earthly embodiment of beauty because they are the muse for the artist. So, as the earthly embodiment of beauty, they become a means through which the artist can um, gain access to a kind of platonic world of of beauty um it's a bit like a uh, pygmalion in the image burne jones is a great quartet of paintings based on morris's poems of pygmalion in the image 
Um, so beauty, it's a subjective concept, but it's but it's uh, um, something that elevates the mind. So the usefulness panders to the body, beauty panders to the mind, it elevates the mind. Do you mind if I'm... If you want to be brief, that's fine, Mark. Just, just I think the reason that he he's not so keen on, on uh, you know, offering us a treatise in aesthetics is because he always refers beauty to labour. If labour relations are good and healthy, then we will have beauty. Can, he goes to Iceland. Now, one, he wants to explore the, the great sagas, as you you mentioned before, when you mentioned the, 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 uh, the Gothic, uh, what they're doing. He thinks that this is a representation of medievalism at his best. He likes the violence. He likes the fact they give their own <laughs> names to swords. Let's keep going with that. Um, and also he wants to get away from the torment of, of seeing Rossetti with his wife. So there you are. Plenty of no reasons to go to Iceland. He goes there. What does he find? So he goes, um, this is, he goes first of all in 1871 and he goes again in 1873 and he's interested also, so yes, partly he's going, things are going badly at home. He and Dante Gabriel Rossetti have bought together um, Kelmscott Manor just outside Oxford and Rossetti and Jane Morris are um, having a relationship there. So he goes away in part to leave them to it. He goes away because he's been feeling, which is very unusual for Morris, depressed and low in spirits, he writes to his friend Aglaia Coronio. And so he sets up a trip with um, his friend Charlie Faulkner from Cambridge, another... Um, acquaintance, um, W.H. Evans, and he also goes with Erica Magnusson, who is an Icelander who's working as a librarian at Cambridge University, um, who Morris had met in 1868 and with whom he'd started to study Old Norse and he'd started to undertake some translations of the Icelandic sagas, which Morris loves because of what he calls the um, Old Norse worship of courage, the sense of drama um, and the commitment, again, of the people to um, fighting their own battles. Um, so he, Why do you think he liked that so much? For him, courage and hope are really important qualities. Um, he writes actually at one point to Edward Byrne-Jones's son, Philip, when he's away at school and uh, says that he's hearing that Philip is having trouble um, with, other, with some of the other boys. He says that he himself, Morris, didn't fight enough at school from want of hope, let us say, not want of courage, he says. So for him, often fighting and being willing to fight is an expression of courage, of um, connection to one's own body and one's own environment and a willingness not to be alienated. But typically of him, he threw himself into the Icelandic sagas he, and got busy with them. And He absolutely did, yes. He produced with um, Erica Magnusson a number of the sagas over the, uh, towards the end of the 1860s and into the 1870s. And then when he goes to Iceland, he finds a connection between the land and these stories. He comes back and writes about the terrible and tragic but beautiful land. The, we, Marcus, we're, 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 he's going, there are different paths. It's like several people we're talking about, about one person. In his lifetime, his reputation was based on his poetry, his early poetry. That's he was right. known as the poet of Dumdum, wasn't he? He was, he was yeah. usually introduced in public as the author of The Earthly Paradise. That's it. Um, and actually, I mean, the, the, the strengths of Morris's poetry are very intimate with, with the, the weaknesses. So the first book, The Defence of Guinevere and Other Poems, was only published in about 250 copies and, and, and was badly reviewed. Morris was shaken by that. Um, in, the, in 1868, um, between 1868 and 1870, he publishes The Earthly Paradise, which is a collection of um, stories, a, a bit like um, uh, Boccaccio's the, the Cameron or the, or the Canterbury Tales, with a framing narrative. Um, and that turns out to be an enormous success. Um, the narrative-hungry um, Victorian audience lap it up. He makes a lot of money from that. Um, but serious you know, intellectual figures like George Eliot, you know, um, are, are very keen on it. She speaks of being hungry for it and saying, you know, if you have an idle afternoon, you should, you should, you should bestow it on the earthly paradise. Um, it isn't a great compliment to say if you have an idle afternoon. It isn't exactly say go and no, get absolutely. this book. No, absolutely. But at the <laughs> Never same, mind. I mean, she's a, she's a fan. That's okay. But, but it, at the same time, I mean, Walter Pater says that the earthly paradise is water to to bathe and swim in, and that doesn't sound like a compliment either. But he he thinks of it as a compliment. It's a total immersion experience, like that afternoon. <laughs> Jane. Um, Jane Thomas. I think Morris is writing in the oral tradition. Um, and um, there are stories of uh, Rossetti saying to Morris, come on, Topsy, read as one of your grinds. <laughs> and, um, and Ruskin himself said, well, Morris's poetry is very, very, very good in its own peculiar way. Uh, I mean, he was offered the Poet Laureate ship in 1891 and he turned it down because he didn't want to give up lecturing at Kelmscott for, quote, writing songs about royal weddings. So, um, you know, he, he was, you know, I, th I think it is of its time. Let's talk about probably his best-known book, News from Nowhere. What, was, what strikes you about that? Well, 
it's about as compromised as his poetry is. You know, is it a utopian fiction? Is it a romance? Is but it a frame narrative? Well, it's um, okay. So it was serialized first of all um, in the Commonweal in um, 1889. The magazine which he subsidised. The magazine he yeah. subsidises, yeah. yeah. Um, it's um, so the narrator. Is it a frame narrator? Is it not? Um, comes away from the league. Could be the Socialist League, where they have had um, an argument about violence, about anarchy. Morris is turning away from notions of violence and anarchy after Bloody Sunday of eighteen eighty-seven, when he sees a peaceful demonstration ruthlessly put down by the police and the militia. So, um, so the, our narrator, who we later call William Guest comes away feeling very dispirited about the revolution and as he's walking home through dirty, grimy, industrial London he wishes that he could see the future um, and he feels the kind of change in the air before he goes to sleep so it's not just a waking up um, so he wakes up the next day and everything's transformed into the future he learns about how the revolution happened from somebody who may be a distant relative of the narrator Why did it catch people's imaginations at the time? Um, I think... Well, it's interestingly, it's part of a whole group of stories around that time, the time machine, heart of darkness, that are kind of odysseys. They're, they're trips up rivers to different worlds, most of them dystopic, of course. Um, and um, I think it, it captures the Victorian imagination because it's dreamy, because it's um, um, because it, it, it sort of it is Morris's vision embodied in prose. They, I mean, it's not for me. For me, it's not an untroubled read. It's a it's a, a difficult read to get through, and there are bits of but it, it that did you have, it did have quite an influence, didn't it? Which which won't continue. We see it being read in World War One by reading groups and yeah. prisoners. And all well, it embodies stuff. an ideal of England. It yeah. embodies an ideal of rural England. I mean, uh, London is turned to a kind of rural. A rural paradise, in a way. Let's be bold and use the word socialist, Ingrid. Uh, why did he become a socialist? Why and when? So he became a socialist in 1883 when he joined the Social Democratic Federation, which was started by Henry Hindman um, in 1880, 1881, as the Democratic Federation and then became the Socialist Democratic Federation. And this is one of the really, um, one of the first uh, Marxist and one of socialist his books was organizations. When, why I became a socialist. Well, he wrote yes, he wrote a short piece yeah. um, for Justice, which is the newspaper <coughs> started by the Social Democratic Federation on why I became a socialist. He writes that in 1884, and he talks about the influence of Ruskin. Um, he talks about how um, his that's where he talks about his hatred of modern civilization and how he gradually came to see that socialism was the way forward for him. What he what he wanted, he said, was not to, to see a world in which there are no brain sick brain workers or heart sick. And workers, but where people live in an equality of condition, where there's neither rich nor poor. By this time, had he read Marx? Because in read Marx, he said it was like a conversion, is the word used. So we're back to his childhood in a way. In, in the evangelicalism, in the Christian idea that yes, you're converted. Yes, absolutely. I mean, for Sorry lots of yes, absolutely. Yes, for lots of socialists bleak. at this time, the, the the idea of the religion of socialism is very important. Yeah. And Morris talks indeed about his conversion to socialism and then about preaching socialism. But it is again about discovering. When he comes back from Iceland, in fact, he's he's developed his ideas about community. He sees the all thing in Iceland, that the place of the all thing, where the tribes came together to share communal government. And he brings that back in news from nowhere. And socialism for him starts to embody a way forward um, for breaking down that, that world in which some have a, load, a lot of stuff and some have very little. Um, the misery that he sees of modern civilization. Marcus, well, he seemed to move from one party to another. Why did he do that? Um, he did. And it, uh, one it, party, one socialist party to another. Yes, he, mo he moves from the Social Democratic Federation um, in, a, in a kind of breakaway group to form the Socialist League in 1884. And from the Socialist League, he ends up in his own local branch, renamed the Hammersmith Socialist Society. And in the first case, it's because he becomes disillusioned with the machinations of, of Heinemann. He thinks of him as having dictatorial tendencies. The Socialist League um, uh, breaks up because um, uh, an anarchist uh, faction in the party gains the ascendancy. And Morris is always... I mean, he. He's, he, he leans towards individual, individuality, not individualism. He, he has that sympathy with the anarchists, but he, that, that belief in fellowship and association and in informal structures means that he can't go that far. So when they take over the party, he's forced out of his editorship of, of Commonweal and, in a sense, retreats to um, Hammersmith. And um, there's a sense in which Morris's localism is kind of 
borne out in that that series of schisms it ends up in his own party which is you know in ironic and it's something he nods towards at the beginning of news from nowhere that there was there were six people present and therefore six factions of the party <laughs> i'm so sure anyway uh, jay can you develop that for us as we come to the end of the program we've talked about i perhaps jumped around a little too much or perhaps i've jumped around no maybe no perhaps exercise up anyway uh, there's this man business there's this man artist there's this man lover there's this man rejected lover this man icelandic sagas there's this man can you get inside his head for us for a minute or two? It's, I think it's a lust for life on Morris's part. It's an earnest lust for life. Um, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about, about Morris and women um, because I think what's extraordinary about the relationship between him and Rossetti and Jane is that he defends Jane, he protects Jane. I mean, she's a, a at this point an upper-middle-class Victorian adulterous wife and, and Morris doesn't... You know, he, he, he protects her. Uh, and in News From Nowhere, he talks about how women should not be um, criticised or ostracised for following their own natural desires. Um, and, and, I mean, it is this, this desire to to experience what he can and to and to, to really get in touch with the energy of human life, which, you know, which he sees embodied in work um, and in their love for beauty. And he's just looking for that wherever he can. Yes, wherever he can, yes. Um, did he feel any any tensions between what he did and what he was? Right from the very start, I, he is a deeply compromised man from the very start. But but as I say, this this is I mean I don't mean sort of Oscar Wilde's type of earnestness. It, it is a very endearing earnestness that that I think does cause him um, a great deal of, of physical and mental distress at certain points in his life. Can you briefly, Ingrid? I know you're tumultuous about Morris and that's absolutely fine can you give us some final idea of his legacy what's the most important legacy he's left yeah I mean I think as we've covered in this program Morris has so many facets to his life and work and his influence is great not only on the arts and crafts movement which now continues to influence the ways in which people view beauty and the usefulness of, of objects, the, the, the purposes of art, the, the connection of art with life. But also, he's had a huge influence on politics. It's worth saying neither anarchism nor socialism are necessarily associated with violence. Um, he is mainly about social change. That's what um, his socialism and anarchism are about. And that continues to influence people up to today. Well, thank you all for taking that on. <laughs> for taking that on. Uh, thanks to Ingrid Hansen, Jane Thomas and Marcus Waith. We now take our annual break and we'll be back on the 13th of September. Please join us. And in the meantime, you can listen again to any and all of the 810 programmes in our archive and download them to listen where, wherever you are this summer. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Thank you very much, Adil. You can sell all the things you really wanted to say. Bags of time now. Here we are. The podcast goes on. What would you most like to have said that you didn't get the opportunity because of my interference to say it, Marcus? <laughs> I'd like to have said something about Sigurd the Volsong, which was the poem that he published in 1876. Yeah. Um, which is where I think some of the, you know, the virtues of the earthly paradise and of the defence of Guinevere come together. There's the directness of, of, uh, and the kind of, I suppose, vitality of the defence of Guinevere combined with that sense of a total world that you get in, in the earthly paradise. So the poem begins, there was, there was a, a dwelling of kings ere the world was waxen old. Dukes were the door wards there and the roofs were thatched with gold. Earls were the rites that wrought it. Um... And there's a sense in which um, a queen's daughters strewed the floors as, uh, in the next line. Um, and, the, and the masters of the song craft were the mightiest men that cast the sails of the storm of battle adown the bickering blast. There's a sense there, yes, of a tragic world and a world with a tragic momentum, but also a world where the particularity of, in, in particular, this sort of folkloric household is coming through very strongly. Morris is you know, attracted to the, to the idea that the poet might also be a sailor and a warrior. He's attracted to the idea that dukes are the door wards there, um, earls are the rights that wrought it, that, that these are not simply removed aristocratic figures, but they are um, makers and doers. I wanted to bring him into our time, really, and talk about, a bit more about his influence architecturally um, through... Um, 
Charles Rennie Macintosh through the Bloomsbury Group through Charleston. If you think about what the Bloomsbury Group well, were you doing, are bringing in because this goes out to several million people. Yeah, so you're all right. Then you're being listened to. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Morris should be listened to, um, and right the way through to Frank Lloyd Wright. I mean, you could say that Morris kind of lays the ground for modern architecture, modernist architecture. I think. Um, I mean, Morris predicts the, the downfall of capitalism. When we think about the, you know, the, the banking crisis of 2008. Um, you could say that the, the hippie generation, the flower generation, are deeply influenced by Morris's ideas and news from nowhere. Um, I mean, it all happens. I think it, Morris is also very unspecific about timelines, like he is unspecific about beauty. It's very difficult to work out precisely where William Guest is, um, but it's something like 2040. William um, Guest is the protagonist. The protagonist, he's yeah. the, the, the sort of narrator. No, he's not the narrator. He's, um, he's narrated um, in News From Nowhere. Um, the kind of craft movement, the cooperative movement from small local shops where communities, where sh- local shops are closing and communities are banding together to actually run these shops for non-profit making purposes. Um, the interest in artisan bread and craft you beer. Think, no, and you're thinking this all stems somehow <clears throat> from Morris. Um, I mean, you're I'd like claiming th- that. Yeah. I'd like to think it stems partly from Morris, but I mean, if you believe that that in Morris's idea that that human beings are essentially crafters, they're essentially makers, and their energies are essentially about dramatizing their testimony in beautiful in the making of beautiful things. Hence, this this thing about alienation of the labor of labor. Um, then I think you can you can see it happening all around you. Um, I think you had a terrific effect on Lawrence, didn't you? On D.H. Lawrence, mm. yes, yes, indeed, yeah, he yeah, did. Both the factory yeah. side and the, and the making yeah. side. Yeah, and, and Hardy as well, actually, yeah. huge yeah. effect. I mean, yeah. Hardy um, begins by thinking he's going to take holy orders, then he t- goes into architecture, and then he builds his own house, Max Gate. Yeah, mm. You know, it's um, uh, he writes, he describes way. Eustacia Vi like Jane Burden. Uh, yeah. You know, um, it uh, the well beloved is a bit like Pygmalion. It's huge effect on Hardy, which hasn't really been looked at. Well, you, did you leave anything out? I did. I did. hundred miles an hour. I'd be very. I'd just like to say it's something that arises a little bit from Jane's discussion of news from nowhere, and also just to come back briefly for a moment to the question of violence. Morris highlights in a number of his articles for the Commonweal, which is the journal of the Socialist League, which he sets up and underwrites, and which runs from eighteen eighty five to eighteen ninety under his editorship, and then uh, carries on for a little while after that. But he writes in there. Uh, very well and in a number of his essays as well about the commercial war of capitalism so drawing in a way on Engels's idea about capitalism as the war of each against all he sees that as a kind of cloaked and hidden war, the violence of the state against the people, the violence of the masters against the workers and so for him um, in News From Nowhere the way in which people uh, rise against that is about the kind of hopeful overthrow of what is already um, violent action but is cloaked, so for him the violence that he represents is about something bringing out into the open he talks about what is already hidden mm-hmm. and then the work that arises out of that is work to which people are connected um, Clara in News from Noah talks about how little by little we got art, we got work pleasure we got pleasure into yeah. our work yeah, yeah. and he's not anti-machine sorry also okay. thing about using machines if we're talking about contradictions I mean he's not a Luddite in the sense of not going with machines machines are there to, to do the onerous and unpleasant work, to liberate people from onerous and unpleasant work, so that we might have a four-hour working day, and we, in that four-hour working day, we spend our time making beautiful and useful things people instead of, instead of surplus <laughs> excess. <laughs> yeah. People have always predicted these shorter days, and yeah. haven't come about yet, have they? No, no, one of the things, see, in the condemnation of factories, a lot of those factories, let's take shipbuilding. In Tyneside, for example, there are 150 about 150 different sorts of carpenters. Now, those men were very skilled and very proud of their work, so they were doing what he was doing, and he seems to, to wipe them all off in the, with the mm. same swipe. Is but it, right? but it's, 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 as you say, they're skilled, handicraft people. They're not working, they're not cogs in a machine. I mean, Ruskin well, says you can... cogs in the machine are building the ship, generally. Yeah, but, but I, I mean, he's, he's got a lot... For, we didn't talk about Carlyle, did we, and about signs of our times and about how man has grown mechanical in heart and mm. mind and hand and... Um, you know, they just become cogs in a the machine. They, they, they do the same well, I, I role repetitively. There's something sweeping about Morris's analysis sometimes. He doesn't give the factory system quite the credit that it, that it deserves in certain mm. areas. Mm. Um, I think if he visited a shipyard, he would have recognised the kinds of, 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 of skill and craft involved there. But there was something a bit high-handed about his analysis sometimes. 
Um, so I think it's right to point that out, actually. Mm. And also yeah. beautiful things come out of factory. And the designer, Christopher Dresser, uses factories and uses mechanisation to produce some of the most beautiful objects of, of the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, I mean, he can't, he can't do without machines, can he? But at the same time, he's... He's kind of um, in despair. It's it's just. I mean, there's more there's more handicraft in machine tools than we tend to recognise. Yeah, yeah. You know, the first machine tool has to be handicrafted, and then it can yeah, become. No, you think yeah. of factories. Um, my mother worked in a factory, uh, and it was uh, um, making clothes and stuff. She made she made uh, buttons, uh, buttonholes actually. But when you went in there, I mean, there were men with large, huge scissors cutting cloth to specific lengths and doing it out chalk marks anymore. They were so good at it. So, so there's a lot of, you could call crap there, turning out serviceable suits and jackets. If, and if you think about the, the weaving mills and looms of the Victorian mm. period, the way they're producing cheap cotton mm. under... Ta- I mean, the other thing that Morris, of course, draws attention to is industrial diseases, mm. white lead poisoning. Mm. We didn't talk about the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings. No, I think that's and, really important. Which is really a important. Legacy. A huge yeah. legacy. The anti-scrape and, and you know, buildings are not there as ecclesiastical toys they're you know they're a kind of uh, testament of the history of humankind mm. but so so the difference between hand weaving tapestry and wall hangings whether you use little boys or not um and and working in a mill where you're likely to get your your head knocked off by a a, a mechanical shuttle or a loom is i think that that's where he sees the the difference there. but also it's about the conditions of and the, the conditions. conditions of labor isn't it mm. and, and the, the the question of whether people are free to choose their own work and to enjoy their own work to be connected with their work or whether they're making yes, you know following another, ruskin on that another thing he doesn't well he maybe does in works of his that you bred and i haven't addressed the fact that they should do this is it's the, the choice of a lot of people was severely limited yeah yeah, uh, yeah. Whereas his was not yeah, limited. Yeah. Which was a huge uh, difference. And he, I think he was aware, aware of that. I mean, that's yeah. in a sense his problem. Where did he write know? about that? Well, he writes uh, a whole range of, of, of lectures um, on the development of uh, economic civilization, in which he goes into great detail about the development of the factory system, about the dissolution of the guilds. Um, and his whole argument really is based on the sense, in, on, on a claim that um, the workplace divorces intelligence and freedom from the work of the hands and he wants to reunite those faculties Mm. Um, I think one of Morris's great legacies is um, this insistence that on a socialist tradition which um, puts art in the forefront of things so this idea that quite a lot of us I think have inherited from recent history that a socialist society has to be drab um, and has to be utilitarian is one that Morris would find very alien. Um, I mean, it's also there in certain writings of Marx, but Morris really insists on it, and I think that's something um, that he can bring to present analysis. Um, his idea of folk art depends on a revolution. He understands that you know he's ministering to the Swinish luxury of the rich because this is a pre-revolutionary situation, and afterwards things will be put right. So, in a sense, it's it's based on a an idea of deferral but that's the destination he has in mind I think we have to give way to the producer who's making an offer you can't refuse I'm offer you tea or artisanal coffee or... oh that's artisanal <laughs> you ground the beans yourself Simon we grew them ourselves tea or coffee anybody I'll have coffee coffee would be lovely water's fine for me In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson it was twilight and Bailey was late An extraordinary real-life story. The black woman in the South who raises sons, grandsons, and nephews has her heartstrings tied to a hanging noose. The author Maya Angelou's memoirs on BBC Radio 4 across the coming year. I will be a conductorette. I will. Well, nothing beats a trial but a failure. Give it everything you got. Beginning with Maya Angelou, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Search for the amazing Maya Angelou wherever you get your podcasts.